The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Good evening, Tom. Fine, thank you. Yourself? Pretty good. Good to be here. Thanks you're for being welcome. here tonight. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Father, I'd like to begin tonight with a discussion concerning lying. And I have a few uh, few scenarios I'd like to present to you and, and get your take on these. But first, just kind of in general, could you tell us, is it ever morally permissible to tell a lie? Uh, actually, no. I mean, by definition, a lie is uh, the attempt to deceive someone by a sign, usually by words, but one can deceive others uh, by gestures, uh, nodding, um, any attempt to um, communicate something against what you know is true. Uh, a, a direct, bald-faced lie is always wrong. Okay? Um, the communication, God has given us the, uh, the ability to communicate. And uh, to communicate even abstract ideas, even to know, even to be able to know what truth is, not just know whether something is true, but even the very concept of truth. We have, we have that because we have the soul in the image and likeness of God, which can know not only what, what is true, but what is truth. And um, God expects us to use communication to convey truth, not, not falsehood. So an out and out lie is always wrong. Okay. So, Father, you say that, that the intention to deceive can be a lie, but what about the, uh, there, there's a classic example of, of let's say you're in, you're in Nazi Germany hiding, hiding Jews in your basement, and the Nazis come knocking on your door asking you if you're hiding any Jews. What do you do in that situation? How do you respond to that? Do you, do you tell a lie? Or do you well, know? let's, uh, I wouldn't say qualify what I just said. Um, when, you, when you have someone who has no right to the truth, okay, and uh, you have someone who, any reasonable person, let's put it this way, would know that you cannot tell them, and they have no right to know, uh, then that, technically speaking, would not be considered a lie. It would be considered a broad mental reservation. Okay? Now, one has to be careful of these of these ideas, because if you if you tell them to someone who doesn't understand them, or you tell these things to somebody who is looking for an excuse to lie, uh, that person can use these ideas to justify in their own mind lying. Okay, <clears throat> but if you, um, for example, if someone were to come up to me uh, after I heard confessions and say, <clears throat> I saw so-and-so went to confession to you, what did he tell you? Well, obviously I couldn't tell him. And um, uh, not only that, but any reasonable person would have to know that I couldn't tell him. So I could uh, tell him I have no idea. Even if I knew very well what he told me, I could tell him I have no idea. Because that would be considered a broad mental reservation and so far as the person number one has no right to know and number two should know reasonably that i couldn't tell him anyway 
that I'm simply not able. It's a non-answer. Basically, what it is is a non-answer. And um, it can be, it's given that way, and it, it should be taken that way as a non-answer. If a doctor had someone who came up to him and said, a person who has no right to know, right, and said, well, what's wrong with so-and-so? The doctor, because of his professional secrecy, right, would have to, uh, well, would duty-bound not to tell the, the uninterested party, <laughs> as it were, uh, would have to actually conceal it from him, and would actually have to tell him, I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, just now, <clears throat> even though the doctor might know very well what's wrong. Uh, but any, again, reasonable person would have to know that the doctor cannot tell him, and that what the doctor is actually giving him is a non answer. Um, the doctor would be violating uh, his moral obligation to maintain well, the discretion, his, his secrecy there, as the priest would be violating the seal of confession uh, by revealing what he was told by anybody in confession. Now, if someone were to come up to me after I heard confessions and ask, well, what did so-and-so tell you? I would probably very honestly say, I don't know, because I probably wouldn't know. I honestly and truly probably wouldn't have, would have no idea. And even if I thought about it, I might have difficulty even recalling what I was told, even if I, even if I knew who the person was who was confessing. Uh, and I think that's true of most priests, because when priests are hearing confession, they're being told things they didn't want to hear in the first place. And when a priest hears confession, his purpose is to make these things go away. And so, uh, to, in my uh, experience, priests are very good at, at basically forgetting what they're told in confession, um, because they've just made up their minds that that's it. You know, they're they're absolved, and they're gone, and uh, nothing more need be said or thought about them. You know? uh, so, you know, one should not be surprised if he, even the even the penitent himself were to come up to the priest the next day and say, Father, what I told you about in confession, and the priest will have to stop for a minute and think, and, and uh, can I honestly tell the person, I'm sorry, but I, you'll, I guess you'll have to refresh my memory if you want to talk about it, because I really don't know what you're talking about. And uh, the person might think, well, the priest is just being coy with me, but, but that's not the case. Priests don't remember. They don't want to remember. You know, they want, they're, they're there to make these sins go away. So, um, but even if the priest knew very well what the person had, had told him, uh, he still would have to give a non-answer. And it's the same in the case that you described here. If somebody showed up at the door and you were hiding some Jewish um, uh, folks who had sought refuge with you and you were, you were giving them sanctuary, and some Nazi um, uh, were to show up with a... Uh, Know, Gestapo in Gestapo in tow, or if the Soviets were to show up at the door and demand, uh, you know, where the where the kulaks are or the Catholics or whatever, and uh, you would honestly say, and I say honestly, say I don't know, nobody here, uh, because number one, they have no right to know, and you have an obligation not to tell them, and uh, they should know reasonably that you have an obligation not to tell them and you're not going to reveal it 
period. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a, a lie in the strict sense of the, of the word that you are deceiving people of a right to know and who have no means of knowing that you are not telling them, that you're giving them a non-answer, period. Okay. You're just literally not answering their question. Okay. And the answer you give is not the answer to their question, honestly. Um, um, there, there are different ways to, to explain it, but one has to be careful in explaining this to young people, like teenagers, because teenagers, think, you know, the wheels start turning thinking, well, gee, a broad mental reservation, I, I could use that in answering my folks' questions like, where did you go tonight, or why, are, why did you stay out late, or who did you see tonight, you know? Gee, broad mental reservation. It can never be applied to parents because parents have a right to know. They have a need to know, they have an obligation to know, they have a right to know, and the children have a, an obligation to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. So there's no application for a broad mental reservation in answering the questions of your parents or anybody who has a, has a right to know. That, that certainly applies to parents. Um, but to nefarious um, evildoers who are, doing, who, who are uh, violating the commandments of God and, and uh, carrying out their unjust attacks and so on, they have no right to know these things. <clears throat> so, um, but I mean, it comes down to the fact that if you, if you are uh, telling someone uh, under the guise of truth, in other words, someone who reasonably would expect that you would tell them the truth and has no reason why you wouldn't, uh, and is going to believe what you say, and you're trying to make them believe what you say, um, then um, then that would be that would be a deception. That would be a lie. If someone in the street uh, were to pass you and say, "Excuse me, what time is it?" and you were to look at your watch and give them a false time deliberately, that would be a, a lie. Because ordinarily, people would have a right to expect that you would communicate the truth to them as a matter of charity, at least, if not a matter of justice, that they ask, you answer. They have no reason why to think that you would deceive them, right? Uh, that's not the case of, uh, you know, communists or national socialists who are coming pounding on your door looking for those who are fleeing for their lives. Um, <clears throat> so... Basically, it comes down to a fact that, uh, you know, the Eighth Commandment uh, has to do with um, uh, bearing false witness against one neighbor, one's neighbor. <coughs> the commandments often involve the worst-case scenarios or the most extreme example of a crime, um, like the, such as the Fifth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. But it includes everything that actually leads up to killing, everything involved in, in hatred and, and uh, you know, anger, impatience, uh, etc. All of these things are included. The, the Eighth Commandment, when it is a matter of deceiving somebody, can include fraud, right? Inducing someone to, 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 to do something based upon false information, including buy something that is misrepresented. That can include calumny, and uh, it can't. But if it involves deceiving one's parents, it also involves the fourth commandment as well. 
Okay. Uh, so a lie can actually involve multiple commandments. Uh, a lie would involve the Eighth Commandment, certainly violate the Eighth Commandment, but a lie would also violate the Fourth Commandment if one, one lies to one parent, one's parents and shows disrespect and even a, a contempt and injustice toward that parent, not giving the, the truth the parent has a right to know. But it can also involve uh, sin against the Fifth Commandment uh, insofar as it would give scandal to others. To do it in front of one's friend, to do it in front of one's siblings, uh, tell a, a, a lie which is known to be a lie by another person would be scandalous. Uh, minimally, uh, we would call it a bad example. So by doing, taking one action, in this case one lie, one can actually commit multiple sins by violating multiple commandments. Father, this, this intention to deceive that we talked about, is it, is it always immoral to have this intention to, to deceive? One, one example I'm thinking of is, let's say I'm walking down the street, I see someone coming towards me, it's an acquaintance of mine who I absolutely do not want to talk to. I pretend uh, that someone is calling me on my phone, I pretend I'm having a conversation on my phone to avoid an interaction with this person. That is obviously an intention to deceive. Would that be a lie and is that immoral? Uh, no, not necessarily. Why not? <laughs> Isn't that an well, intention to yeah, deceive that's them? That's a good point, Tom. Yeah. It is an intention to deceive them, but um, you're not exactly... Um, I guess what you're doing is setting up a scenario that they would misread, okay? Um, but um, you're not directly answering a, a query from them and an approach from them to talk to you, right? Okay. You suspect that they would want to keep you and talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you're thinking of a good excuse to uh, excuse yourself from talking with them, right? Maybe in a hurry, whatever. Right. Um, what comes to mind here also, though, is another question, too. Um, that might be similar. I don't know. Um, you're invited to someone's home for dinner, okay? And they serve you something um, that is the, the stuff of nightmares, okay? <laughs> you don't like it anyway. It's too heavily seasoned, whatever it is. It doesn't taste good. Um, and they ask you how it is, right? And you tell them, this is horrible. <laughs> I've never tasted anything so horrible in my life. I think I'm going to be ill. Please get this away from me. I can't stand the sight of it. You would never say that, right? right? But you would never be expected to say that. Right? It's, it's just, you can't. <laughs> you just can't do that. Uh, could you say, well, it's delicious? Um, you could say that, meaning that uh, you're, there, are certain, there are people in the world who would consider this to be absolutely scrumptious. They might be, you know, in a third world country and uh, extremely hungry. And so they would appreciate this, uh, having the opportunity to, to eat this, which they don't have. Um, you, but you obviously could not, by social convention, tell them this is very, this is awful, you know. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to be graceful and gracious about it. And, uh, of course, you risk if they tell you, if you tell them that it's scrumptious, that they immediately put another <laughs> huge helping on your plate. 
and expect you to eat it with a great smile on your face. Mm-hmm. But um, to make excuses to make excuses under a situation like that in a situation like that is not is not considered to be. Um, even though you might say it is a matter of deceiving them, right? Um, it is something that is socially required, almost really required, and anybody would know that. Mm-hmm. You know, again, a reasonable person would know that. Okay. Uh, that when the cook asks you how do you like it, um, it would be considered gauche and uh, very uncharitable to. Um, go into detail about how horrible okay. the food really is. Um, if it's if it involves somebody you really don't want to talk to for whatever reason, uh, again, you know, for someone to feign being busy with something so that I really can't talk to you right now, uh, again, I think that's kind of a social convention. And even if we use cell phones to, to feign that right now, um... Again, I wouldn't necessarily consider that to be deception in the sense of lying. I did say that. I mean, to to use uh, to send, give the false impression to deceive somebody, um, you know, is the the essence of a lie. Perhaps I could I could actually give a the classical definition of a lie. I don't know if it would help clarify things. Uh, locutio contra mentem, a speech against the truth or against one's mind. What knows is the truth and one actually tries to uh, uh, deceive the other person. In this case, with a cell phone, you're trying to deceive a person into thinking you're, you're busy on the phone, okay? But if somebody is coming to the door and you suddenly you start, you know, getting very busy, and you pick up the broom, carry it to the door, and say, oh, I'm sorry, and yeah. would that be a lie? You know, it'd be lying to them because you weren't really sweeping the floor, but you appear with the broom, just give them the wrong impression. Well, give people the wrong impression is not the same as deceiving them, necessarily. Uh, you might say, well, okay, uh, <laughs> but I mean, um, it isn't, in fact. It's a matter of social convention in this case. And I think people should get the message that, well, you know, so-and-so doesn't necessarily want to talk to me or can't talk to me right now, and this is their way of letting me know this without telling me I don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Father, another aspect of this, I think, in this discussion of buying the subject of taxes always, always comes up. You mentioned earlier, you know, the, the example of... Uh, the Nazis not having any right to to the knowledge that they're asking of you. What about uh, those who say the government has no right to the money that they're requesting from you via taxes? So in that situation, would it be acceptable to lie on your tax return? Let's say that uh, here in America, you know, we have our government who gives millions and millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. this this terribly evil organization who, who slaughters our most innocent children on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, our government is literally giving them millions and millions of dollars. Five hundred million dollars was just uh, a, a lot of Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood, it, it, public largesse, and, tax and, money. And, and we see this and we say, okay, how in the world can I, as a Catholic, literally fund, I mean, there's no such thing as the government's money, it's our money. How in the world can I fund this organization, Planned Parenthood, by giving my tax dollars to them? So in that case, would it be acceptable to me, for me to lie on my tax return? Let's say that uh, 
for my business, I say that I spent $10,000 in materials, which is actually true. I deduct that from my taxes. I add everything up. My tax bill is $1,000 to the government. But I say, mm, hang on, what if I change that number? I say, I lie. I say, I spent $20,000 in materials. Now my tax bill suddenly disappears. It's $0. I don't owe anything. Would that be moral? Is that justifiable? Because I say, if I give them money, they're going to give this to Planned Parenthood. They're, they're doing all these terribly immoral things and just wars. Uh, the list goes mm -hmm. on and on. Can I lie to avoid giving them money? Mm -hmm. Well, Tom, this is a very good question. A lot of people are asking that question these days. I've been asking for some time because of the immoral use mm -hmm. of the public monies. Right? And uh, these questions are very, very good, difficult to answer, but they need, they demand yeah. answers, right? And I'm not saying that I'm giving the best answer, obviously, but uh, saying, you know, as in obeying any law, okay, uh, there, there are penal laws in the United States of America that have punishments with them, okay? And uh, I'm not changing the subject, I'm just kind of building in that direction. Uh, if you're driving down the highway and it's a clear day, the roads are, are clear and dry, clean and dry, and you can safely drive uh, 80 miles an hour, whereas the posted speed limit is 70. Are you breaking God's law? No. Not if there's no risk. Not if you are not um, uh, taking a chance or, uh, as I say, risking your life or limb or anybody else's life or limb. If you can drive safely at that speed, let's say there are some who can and some who cannot drive safely at half that speed even, okay? But if you can drive safely at that speed, you've got a good car, it's, the, the tires are good, you're wide awake and so on, it's not immoral to drive at that speed. But is it against the civil law? Yes, it is, okay? But is that a sin? Now, it, it could be a sin, perhaps, if it's a bad example, if you're scandalizing someone you're teaching to drive and you're basically setting the example of driving over the speed limit. Um, yeah, that, that could be if you're encouraging something, someone else to do something wrong and it would be dangerous for them. Oh, that could be wrong. But just, you know, barring any other circumstances like scandal, bad example, and so on. If you're doing it safely, it's not morally wrong. Uh, but, you know, the church has always said, even though you wouldn't necessarily be sitting under those circumstances and exceeding the, exceeding the speed limit, you'd still have a moral obligation to accept the penalty if you were caught and you're given a ticket and you honestly were, were speeding, then you should accept the penalty because that is a necessity of living in society with laws that we, we accept the fact that people have to obey the laws and accept the penalties if they break them. Okay, so um, now with regard to taxes, right? There's another there's another element involved here, and that is the tax money is being diverted to immoral purposes. One might say, well, I, I certainly do, will not want a single dollar of my tax money to go to Planned Parenthood in their murderous rampage against life of unborn children, and uh, so. I am going to withhold that share of my tax money. And they try to figure out what that comes down to. It might come down to basically about three cents of their tax bill, or maybe even less, actually. They might even say, well, no, I'm going to withhold all of it because uh, whether I prorate it 
according to what portion, what fragment of my tax money is given to Planned Parenthood, or just the whole thing. I'm not going to support all these immoral causes, these these wars everywhere, these um, whatever else you know is being done. Uh, research on this, LGBT uh, celebrations or whatever that are being cast in my cities, my states. I'm not going to be contributing to those parties to celebrate things that I consider to be grossly immoral. And could they morally say I will not contribute to that? They could. But the fact is, though, that there are penalties for that. And should they be willing and ready to pay the penalties if, if it comes down to that? Well, they may have to. <clears throat> you know, there was no income tax in this country until Abraham Lincoln introduced the income tax. There was property tax, but no income tax. But Abraham Lincoln introduced the, the, the income tax as a temporary measure to fund the Northern Civil War, <coughs> the Northern expenses of, you know, pursuing the Civil War. And it, of course, became an institution after that. And uh, a whole department of government devoted to it after that. And there are those who are still arguing that it is illegal, that there's no uh, legal or constitutional basis for it. But they are being uh, prosecuted, imprisoned, fined heavily, and so on. Um, as to whether or not governments have the right to tax citizens <clears throat> based on property or income or whatever else, right? There is no doubt that governments have the right to tax citizens. Uh, as long as the government is providing necessary services with the tax money. For example, we have an interstate highway system. And um, the, the, the highways of the United States of America, I don't think anybody would have been willing to part with. I think most people use them regularly, right? And um, these, you know, you've got... Interstate 71, Interstate 75, going through Cincinnati and so on. And, uh, you know, you have dollars that are being taxed by states and by the federal government for, their, for, for a standing army for the United States of America, for the defense of our country. And any number of other um, good purposes that really are necessary one can argue, well, they're greatly inflated in this huge bureaucracy, and I, I would agree totally with that. But nonetheless, uh, in essence, these things are necessary for a national government and for a state government. And so they do have the need and the right to tax somehow to obtain the revenue they need for the common good. It all comes down to the question of the common good. If they begin to uh, rapaciously seize people's hard-earned money uh, to pursue things that are contrary to the national interest, at what point does the individual have the right to say that? That I think that my government is abusing uh, monies and um, doing things that are, in this case, unconstitutional, uh, illegal, or even immoral, right? And uh, when does the person have the right to say, I cannot support this in good conscience? If it's a matter of conscience, then it might be necessary for the person to say, I cannot.
I simply can't. But if it's a matter of conscience, again, they have to be ready to, to deal with the civil consequences and to have the courage to stand up for what is right, even if there's a pe- there are penalties for it. But are they morally justified in lying? In, in terms of deceiving and lying about it. Well, again, you know, this opens up a whole can of worms there, in a sense. Um, you know, it might sound like I'm kind of talking around the issue here. But I don't think I am, really, because there's so many things involved here. Um, I, I, I think you would be justified in concealing that. Um, <clears throat> I think the burden is on the government to demonstrate that you have that you have deceived them, especially if there's a matter of a moral principle involved uh, and you feel is that you are unjustly being targeted and unjustly um, being required to do something that you believe is, is grossly immoral, as, for example, supporting abortion and Brown Plan Porn and Parenthood and so on. <clears throat> and uh, you have a right to try to avoid the penalties, as it were, for doing what you believe is the right thing to do and that they're doing something that is very wrong. Um, beyond that, government almost uh, like, um, for example, like companies themselves, you, you go to the supermarket, okay? You go to the, um, to the, um, these big stores, right? What are they called? Big box stores, you go wherever they go. They factor into the pricing what they expect to lose by shoplifting. Mm. They factor into insuring, they insure themselves against this kind of thing. In other words, you're actually paying for the losses that they expect to incur. All of this is factored in. Uh, Their accountants, their actuarials, their actuaries, they factor all in the risks involved in being in business. I mean, how much spoilage there's going to be, fruit and vegetables, uh, and, and all, of the, all of that gets factored into the price, okay? So you're actually paying to a great extent for the losses that are already can be factored in there. Um, so uh, to what extent, for example, um, now that's not an encouragement to steal anything from them. You know, obviously, it would still be stealing, right? But... Um, it does have to do with your obligation, if you find out that they make a mistake in your favor, to go back to them and say, look, you know, they, they didn't charge me for this item. I would, I would still recommend that people go back and say, look, your cashier didn't charge me for this $5 item here, right? But at a certain point, a person has to ask, okay, jeopardizing that person's job, putting that person on the spot, right? There is a problem involved there. Taking the time out of the manager's day, the manager's being paid to deal with this, okay? To what extent is this actually counterproductive to the company? Um, And uh, to what extent um, uh, might it even get people in trouble who are, who? who shouldn't be in trouble, who are perfectly innocent. People who might be blamed for putting a tag on it, but the tag was missing because somebody pulled it off, but it wasn't the responsibility of the person who stocked the item. You just don't know. Um, 
And in some cases, it even would come down to where the person, you know, you take a can of beans back and say, look, I didn't pay for this. And, you know, at some point they're going to say, look, it, it costs us more to deal with this problem than it would be just to give you a can of beans. So, in other words, there, there's a certain price of doing business there. As long as someone does not have a moral fault involved uh, in carrying off some kind of heist, that's one thing, okay? Uh, now, what does this have to do with somebody filling out his taxes? Government kind of factors in. They factor in that people are not going to be putting down every dollar they get. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to come after you, you know. But they factor that in uh, to their tax code. And uh, that's where they factor the penalties in. And they have an idea what monies they're going to need to do what they're going to do. And beyond that, they've also left themselves kind of a, a blank check for printing more money to uh, borrow money uh, from the Federal Reserve to do what they want to do. They just get the, 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 the Treasury, right, to print more money, right? And um, they, they borrow that money. The, the government borrows money to spend on projects and then charges you for it, you know, the money they borrowed, right? And they're taxing you to get that money, and they're getting that money from in various ways, you know, all kinds of fees and so on. So I do not consider it immoral for a person to adjust his tax return in that way. <laughs> so he says, well, I'm not going to support something that I consider immoral. If, um, it, if it comes down to it where the government has a problem with it, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say exactly why um, this happened. And um, I'm going to have the moral courage necessary to take a stand on this. Um, but, um, you know, I, I feel that I'm immorally and unjustly being put on the spot to do something that I believe is wrong, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. And, um, and I have a right to try to avoid uh, prosecution for doing something that is right based upon... Um, uh, my government's decision to, to try to use me as a, uh, as a collaborator in doing something wrong. So I don't know if that helps or not, or it makes <laughs> sense, but, uh, um, you know, it, the, the question of whether it is illegal is different from the question of whether it is immoral. Sure. And you're asking whether it is immoral, and I would say, no, it is not immoral. Okay. I would say, is it immoral to say, I don't... That, it, that governments have no right to tax anything for any, any reason whatsoever. I think the church has spoken very clearly on that, that government, good government, does have the right to tax, to tax when it is pursuing things that are for the common good, but is in need of providing what is necessary for the common good. Father, I think this discussion leads nicely into this article that you brought up today titled, Checking the Pope, Can Truth Be an Idol? So do you have any mm -hmm. comments on this, uh, this article that you brought up? Uh, I do, actually, uh, Tom. And, of course, all, all roads seem to lead to Francis of here, course. unfortunately. Um, but um, as, you, as you're well aware, a book has recently come out uh, in English, The Dictator Pope. And... Um, I, I not only have gotten a copy, but I've seen others sporting copies of this. And it is about Francis. It says, The Dictator Pope, The Inside Story of the Francis Papacy. 
the name on the cover for the authorship goes to Mark Antonio Colonna, who was a, an admiral of the Venetian fleet at the Battle of Lepanto. But actually, the, the author has been revealed to be a gentleman who wanted at first to hide his identity, not for the sake of shielding himself, but for shielding his contacts, his sources, his friends in the Vatican. The, the name is Henry Sire, H.J.A. Sire, an author and historian. The book jacket gives you his uh, resume there. Very interesting. Uh, he, he actually was working with the Knights of Malta as an historian for the Knights of Malta. He was in residence in Rome for four years and had access to a lot of information. And as a historian, he was able to put, put the information together into that book. Uh, since then, he has been unceremoniously sort of ejected from the Knights of Malta. And as he probably expected he would, because, well, when you write a book about the d dictator pope, you expect that if, you, if he really is that, this is exactly what's going to happen to you. you know? So just like if you, if you say my government is, is <clears throat> acting unconstitutionally, illegally, and immorally, then you would expect that if you resist it, it is going to treat you badly, right? Precisely because what you're saying is true. And so uh, it is true that this man has been treated rather shabbily, shall we say, uh, because what he's written is true. And those who, who have contributed to his book, whether willingly or unwillingly, wittingly or unwittingly, can bear testimony to the fact that it is true that the persona of, of Francis is a, uh, is a complete fiction, that he's not this uh, mild-mannered, avuncular, happy, smiling, cheery, sort of humble, merciful soul that he uh, is portrayed to be. That is sort of like a, a, a creation, right? It's a creature that is <clears throat> that has been, uh, well, the man behind the curtain, with the with the dog tucking on his pant leg is actually uh, is actually not this this man. Um, Francis is a modernist, and the things that we uh, we read in the book about him, and the things that we read about, and you mentioned even this idea of truth in terms of Francis, it all fits perfectly the the character of a modernist. I mean, read this book and. You know, trying to discern whether or not the term modernist fits Francis. And you look in the, in the table of contents in the back, or, no, I'm sorry, you look in the, in the index in the back of the book, and you look for the word modernist, and you see, well, the word modernist doesn't appear there anywhere. So does Marc Antonio Colonna, alias, uh, or actually, I should say, does uh, Mr. Sire, alias Marc Antonio Colonna, does he actually peg Francis as a modernist? Well, that's just it. So many of these authors who are telling us about this man will not use the M word for some reason. But St. Pius X used the M word. He talks about modernists. He talks about the modernists being the worst and most dangerous enemies the church has ever faced. 
And uh, Sire here is saying he didn't write this to attack Francis. He wrote this uh, to sound the alarm against him, to sound the alarm against Francis, because the church is under attack. I mean, he comes out and says that, point blank. Uh, he's trying to sound the alarm against this man and what he's doing. Now, what does that tell you? Why not go ahead and just say he's a modernist? He's a dyed-in-the-wool modernist, every fiber in his being. His DNA, it's, it's modernism all the way through, you know. Uh, well, here you have, by Father Gerald Murray, an article, an opinion article in LifeSite News, which is a very interesting site, LifeSite News, for April 23rd, so very recently, an article entitled, Checking the Pope, Can Truth Be an Idol? And here, Father Gerald Murray says, <clears throat> and he, he attributes this to Francis. Then Pope Francis, he says, made a startling claim. Um, when he, this was, by the way, from Francis's address given during the Chrism Mass in St. Peter's Basilica on Holy Thursday morning. This is what he's quoting from here. He says, then Pope Francis made a startling claim, we must be careful not to fall into the temptation of making idols of certain abstract truths. They can be comfortable idols, always within easy reach. They offer a certain prestige and power and are difficult to discern. Oh, that word discern. They love that word discern, which means you just explain everything away. But nonetheless, he continues... Because the truth idol imitates, it dresses itself up in the words of the gospel, but does not let those words touch the heart. Much worse, it distances itself, it distances ordinary people from the healing closeness of the word and the sacraments of Jesus. So Francis here, according to Father Murray, is setting up this opposition between truth and the healing closeness of the word, the sacraments, and the gospel, as though truth and the gospel somehow can be incompatible. And that truth can become an idol. Do you know what the man is saying? I mean, does anybody not understand this? Those who have read Vashendi would read that and say, this is straight out of St. Pius X's word. This is exactly what he warned us about, that the modernists look upon Dogma, they look upon doctrine as the enemy. Dogma states, states unchanging truth. And Francis considers that to be an enemy, an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of, I guess, Jesus as he considers him, an enemy of faith as Francis believes it to be. <clears throat> because Francis, as a modernist, considers faith to be a continually developing experience. Kind of a dialogue with reality where you're discerning the, the divine, you know, out of your experience. Um, and if there's no such thing as an unchangeable truth. In fact, the very idea is an oxymoron for a modernist, an unchangeable truth. Because truth is something vital, they say. St. Pius X said it well. It must constantly change. It has to constantly evolve. To remain truth, it has to change. <coughs> so there is no such thing as an unchangeable truth in the modernist lexicon. 
And so this it gives you an idea of Francis's mentality in terms of the intellect of Francis, how he conceives of truth, that it can be set up as an idol if it's considered to be something that is true and truth and unchangeable truth, it is an idol. And the enemy of the gospel, because his message of the gospel is his message of the truth, the one tradition of the church is change. Okay? The one stable thing about the church is change. The one stable thing about faith is change. Right? Um, so, when you come to this book now, The Dictator Pope, again, you go back to Pashendi, St. Pius X mapped it all out. What did he say were the characteristic traits of modernists? Recall? Audacity. And? And... I can't remember. Pride. 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 Pride and audacity. Audacity and pride. Audacity in that nothing is sacred to them. Everything is subject to their scrutiny, their critic critique, their change, everything, right? Audacity. They shrink from nothing. Um, and pride, the, the attitude that they are the ones who know and that, that everybody has to count out to their vision of things. Francis, the dictator pope, the quintessential modernist, right? He is the, the chemical cocktail from which the primordial ooze, modernist ooze from which he has come. He's come out of the primordial, primordial ooze of modernism. And he is the incarnation of modernism. And, uh, I mean, whatever they're writing about him now, uh, when they're talking about, uh, you know, the various writers who put up, put up books about him, whether they write favorably or not about him, it all comes out the same. Mm -hmm. That Francis basically has crawled up on the shore out of the primordial sea of this modernist soup now and he has gotten up on his hind legs and he's now the um, the modernist pope of a new world order church father i think this is this is so uh so clear for anyone who wishes to see it that uh this is Kind of, you, you could say the whole the whole problem with society today is that there's an attack on truth, and it makes yeah. sense because God is truth. Yeah. Uh, tr truth is that which is. It's the the best definition that I've heard of truth, and that describes God perfectly. And so, but you see, Francis would say, "Well, God, no, 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 God is love." Yeah. <laughs> he would say, "Saint John, God is love," mm -hmm. but he would he would say, "You can't have the God of truth and the God of love; they're not compatible." Yeah. Because as far as Francis goes, I mean, there is no unchangeable truth. Truth is what God is evolving to be, and that is a matter of love. Mm -hmm. So this is the modernist, the, the, the fundamental modernist dichotomy between truth and love. And that is why a modernist does not believe in the true God. He has a false notion of God. Mm -hmm. And, and Father, I think the scary thing is that is that you see this uh, this trend is just worsening. Just recently, I, I read a study. I can't remember the exact numbers, but there's some uh, staggering proportion of young people of millennials who believe that that truth is relative. There's no, you know, like you're saying here, there's no definite, unchanging truth. Everything is just 
relative. And I think that you see that manifested in, in society so clearly today in so many different ways. You know, we have this whole uh, VR virtual reality movement, all these these video games, the, um, the, the TV shows, the movies that, that our, our, our culture produces now. Uh, there's there's no such thing. There's no concept of reality anymore. And if you think about it, that is that's that's the entire basis of of Christianity uh, of everything is that there's one unchanging reality. Mm-hmm. And if you take that away, if there's no truth, what are we left with? But just an absolute disaster. Well, in the modern world, truth is what you make it. Yeah. And whose truth is going to prevail? Because we each one has its own truth. Yeah. But again, that is the that is the fundamental, the kind of the cornerstone of modernism. That faith is an experience mm-hmm. that each one has, but we can share faith, yeah. and uh, that shared faith evolves throughout time with humanity, mm-hmm. and so the notion of God evolves, but the notion of God essentially is God. It is who God is. Our notion. That's why God cannot be God without man quote-unquote, Francis, right? (laughs) Because we define who God really is by our notion of God and how he he actually corresponds to what the kind of God we are willing to accept today. The modernist says he's the one who knows what, he's the one who's got his finger on the pulse of humanity and he knows what that God is that mankind is looking for today. Francis is the man who is going to interpret the mind of, man, of, of humanity now to lead us into that next evolution of God, that next metamorphosis, that next incarnation of God, as it were, mm-hmm. for humanity. And we know where that's leading, of course. It's ultimately going to be leading to the Antichrist. Huh? Mm-hmm. When you say truth is relative, what are you what are you saying? What do you mean by that, though? That truth is uh, relegated to the realm of, of taste. There's no moral, definite things. You can't say murder is wrong. And that, that's what, what makes all this so frustrating is you can't argue anything with anyone because if you take abortion, for example. Uh, you, you can you can go to someone and say, okay, we're going to have a discussion about abortion, about abortion. Let's lay down some general principles to guide our discussion. Murder is wrong. And you'll find people who just say, oh, okay, hang, hang on. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, my truth is is what I believe. It's uh, it's it's my concept. It's my it's my taste. Everything is relegated to the realm of taste. You can't make any moral definite statements anymore. Everything is just. You know, I've given the example before. Everything is is like ice cream. One person says I like chocolate ice cream. The other person says I like vanilla ice cream. I like abortion. I don't like abortion. If you don't like abortion, that's fine. That's your taste. That's your version of the truth. That's your. your so you're idea. talking in terms of kind of principle though like murder is wrong that's principle okay Mm -hmm. but when you say the truth is relative you can actually go to the lower level and say even beneath that even in terms of definition what murder is we can't even agree on that we can't even discuss it sure because what you think of murder is not necessarily what I think is murder so how do we even have a discussion about the principles when we can't even agree on on what the terms mean you can't everything is relative the truth is relative yep You, you can't, Father. And I've mentioned this um, this this uh, ethic college ethics class that I'm uh, that I'm kind of remotely involved in, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's just so sad to see that these college level students you can't have any sort of discussion with them 
uh, at the end of, of the semester, all, all of the students have to get up and give a, a short three to five minute presentation on, on some uh, moral ethic uh, uh, topic. And it's, it's just so sad to see that they can't, they can't even form a statement. They can't, they can't say anything because everyone is so inculcated with this idea of truth is relative. There's no definite truths. Everything is just kind of wishy-washy. This is my opinion. This is why I believe abortion is wrong. Oh, you disagree with me? Okay, that's fine. I just, uh, this, this is my, and there's no, there's just nothing. It's so weak. There's no one that ever gets up and says, this is wrong, period. And that's the whole problem with societies. We don't have any... I, I would say there are those who do. They're generally the professors yeah. <laughs> who are very dogmatic about their liberalism and their leftist progressivist mm -hmm. views, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing they're sure of is that you're wrong. Yeah. And you're the only one that's wrong, right? Yeah. Because you're so convinced that this is right and this is true, but you can't say that. Yeah. Now, there's one thing that is true and that is there is no truth. There was one thing that is wrong and to say that there's anything wrong. <laughs> and um, of course it's self-contradictory but they don't care, it doesn't matter right. why? because they're irrational oh, yeah. they're not only irrational, they're anti-rational that's the worst part of it they're not just irrational they're anti-rational they have a, like an animus against rationality they resent it even sometimes hate it mm -hmm. and this is what we're dealing with right now the degradation of the human race to the point where what is supposed to be the image of God in man yep. is considered to be an object of scorn, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, that we, we, we revel in the idea that we're nothing but uh, uh, great apes, you know, another, another level of evolution of, of the great apes. We revel in that, the idea of being in the, creating the image and likeness of God mm -hmm. is but abhorrent. This, this degradation of man that you talk about perfect example, going back to that ethics class, all of these students are getting up giving their absolutely horrendous presentations on whatever, abortion, gun control, so on and so forth. Finally, one 20-something-year-old one, uh, one, man gets up and says, my presentation today is going to be on the natural law. And I thought, okay, wow, this might actually be something. Someone might actually get a good presentation. He starts out his presentation and says, I believe in the natural law because I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't want to believe in an afterlife. I think that all of your happiness should be in this world. You should place all of your hope, all of your everything. Your entire life should be focused on the natural world. You should seek natural happiness. You shouldn't. Uh, okay. you should, that's what he means you should by natural that's law. His, that's his natural okay. law. And some of the okay. students questioned him and said, okay, so what do you, what do you think happens when, when you die? He says, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> and this this is this is a this is a college level this is a, a man a, what's supposed to be a, a near full grown man a twenty something year old man in college taking a college level ethics course, and his idea of the natural law is we should seek our happiness in this world. The professor says nothing. Uh, they they question him terrible questions, and, and his 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 best answer is I don't want to think about it. I, I prefer not to think about it. I only want to think about the natural world. I don't even want to think about what happens after after death. And mm -hmm. uh, talk about the degradation of man. I mean, that's just uh, mind-boggling. Yes, it is uh, mind-boggling, but unfortunately not surprising today. Mm -hmm. it's, oh, it's, this is what we call higher education. Today. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the theme. He's, he fits right in with everyone else. I mean, they give him a, a, a thorough round of applause after mm -hmm. his, his presentation, and it is just, mm -hmm. just 
so sad to see. I mean, have you given your presentation yet? I'm not, but I, I, I don't, uh, I don't give a presentation. So oh, you're not going to give a presentation. I'm not, not. Uh, I'm kind of more, more of an, an observer of the class. Oh, you know, I see. So, yeah. I see. Not, not technically. Involved. Well, that's unfortunate. Though. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah because uh, I'm sure by the time you were done, they'd be. I think I might be. I be, think be, they'd be, be reaching the for the for the torches <laughs> and the brickbats and who knows what. Yeah. I believe so. We'd be referring to you as. Uh, you know, the, the martyr of so-and-so. Yeah. But uh, anyway, but I think you could probably tell them some good things. And who knows, there might be some rational person left in the classroom who would actually uh, respond. But you don't know. How do, how do you know? Yeah. This is the situation we've got, though. And this is what is prevailing in our college classrooms right now. Because we see the kind of people who are, who are presiding over those classrooms. These are the kind of people who've been hired to teach the children. Uh, or young adults, I should say, now. So, you know, you, you look to the future, the next generation coming up, and you wonder what kind of a world they're going to make of this. Um, we have to pray for them. Mm -hmm. You know, to get back to the, the initial question about truth, though, um, I hope I haven't confused anybody by, you know, I've said, you know, the classic example that people use is uh, uh, that of, uh, you know, well, in the old days, they had the family phone that was actually plugged into the wall, you know. And uh, the phone rings, and the little girl answers the phone, and the voice on the end of the line says, uh, Hello, this is, you know, Bob from the Acme Aluminum Signing Company. Is your mother there? And uh, the little girl goes running off and says, Mommy, uh, somebody from uh, about aluminum signing is calling you. And the mother says to little Penelope, well, tell him I'm not home, or I'm taking it out. Tell him I'm busy, or whatever. And the little girl goes back and says, Mommy says she's too busy and she can't come to the phone right now, or Mommy says she's not home now, or whatever. You know. um, and the little girl hangs up. So um, was that a lie? You know? Or the little girl answers the door, and uh, there's this guy standing there with... Uh, He's all in black with dark sunglasses, carrying a violin case, but there's no violin inside, you know. And he, uh, he introduces himself as Knuckles, and he wants to have a chat with her dad, who owes him some money, right? And the little girl goes running off and finds dad, you know, like, in the workshop and says, well, you know, tell him I'm, I'm not here. And, and the little girl goes, tells the man, daddy, daddy says he's not here. <laughs> Is the little girl lying, then? Are the parents lying? And uh, again, you know, the, the con common explanation of the church in that matter was, well, uh, when somebody calls like that out of the clear and blue and says, I need to talk to you about aluminum siding, they're imposing on you. Uh, they have no right to talk to you, and you have every right to tell them no. And uh, rather than just tell them no, I'm not going to talk to you, or uh, mommy says she's not going to talk to you, um, just to, to give it a kind of an excuse was considered to be a non-answer, you know. To tell somebody who was there to um, hurt your father, um, or the father's desire to, you know, avoid this enforcer there, is not unreasonable. And uh, the answer he gave was, you know, I'm not here for you. Basically, that's how it interpreted. I'm not here for you. Again, I'm not coming. I'm not coming to see you. That's the answer any reasonable person would expect, you know. The issue that comes up here, though, is what does the child get out of this? If you send the child to say <clears throat> to somebody, 
something that really is manifestly not true. Um, uh, even though, strictly speaking, it doesn't meet the definition, strict definition morally of a lie, okay? But would be more along the lines of a, a, a broad mental reservation. Um, so, uh, what is the child, can the child make that distinction? One has to be very careful about that. Uh, even if the adult realizes, okay, there's a justification for this, and this is, conventionally, this is understood to be a non-answer. What, what, what is my child getting out of this? I have to be very careful about that. You know? If the parent lectures the child on telling the truth, and then the next day sends the child on a mission like that, the parent has to be very careful about this kind of thing. That's why when we talk about these broad mental reservations, I know he's a little bit wary of it, you know, mm -hmm. because it can be so easily abused. Um, when we get into question of, of filling out taxes, for, for example, I mean, you, you could have asked, and we're not going to get into this now, but what about insurance forms? What about fudging on the insurance forms to collect the money, right? What about fudging on, um, uh, um, you know, what should I say, uh, employment uh, applications and so on? At what point do you cross the line? And basically, uh, you know, it comes down to they have a right to know. In justice, they have a right to know the truth, right? And they have a right to expect the truth. And uh, under normal circumstances, they, they would they would not expect anyone to deceive them. They would have a right, they would have an expectation that they would get the truth for this, right? Because they need to, to know the truth, okay? So that would certainly involve a lie, mm -hmm. intention to deceive where uh, there is an obligation uh, in all counts to be truthful. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, I hope that clarifies matters a, a little bit. These things can be a little convoluted, though. When you get into the casus conscientiae, the cases of conscience, where you're talking about the different cases and you're trying to morally analyzing, determine what is the, the right thing to do and so on, there can be some spirited discussions sometimes, even among moralists. But uh, the fact is, the fundamental problem we have today is the fact that they're trying to um, replace the New Testament with the New World Order. They've rejected the New Testament of Christ, and they want to institute instead their own New World Order <clears throat> instead of the New Testament. And uh, that necessarily involves <clears throat> uh, destroying the very concept of truth. The Masons, um, taking their cue from Voltaire, have said that their objective is, the Italian Masons in particular, and we read this in the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, have said that our objective is that of Voltaire, to actually make the memory, even the memory of Christ, disappear from the world. Well, there is such a, a coincidence between that, making the memory of Christ disappear, actually necessarily involves making the very concept of truth disappear. 
because Christ is the way and the truth and the life. So the only way they, they can make the, the, even the, the remembrance of Christ disappear from the world is they have to undermine and finally discard the very concept of truth and render it something abhorrent, something to be despised, the very idea that there is such a thing as truth. Um, the Word of God has to, uh, the, very, the very concept of the, the, behind that has to disappear. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're well on their way to accomplishing that, you know. Yep. We, we see that in Italy, you know. I just was ever with a number of my students and uh, chaperones. And we see this, this two-phase program in Italy. I mean, the, the nation of Italy was really a, a Masonic project. <clears throat> it was a Masonic project to unify the different kingdoms and duchies and so on, principalities in the Italian peninsula into a unified nation under a king. Okay? Uh, Umberto, Victor Emmanuel, and so on. <clears throat> they wanted to unify the Italian peninsula into this one, this one nation. But the reason they wanted to do it was because they wanted to take away the papal states from the Pope. And as I mentioned before, Tom, they had this idea and they had it all spelled out. I mean, it wasn't just imagined that we weren't surmising or trying to somehow read their minds and infer what they were getting at. They made it very clear that if they could take away the Pope's independent kingdom, they would take away his independence, make him a citizen of a government ruled by Masons who would be making laws that would be inimical to the church and inimical to the faith, and the Pope would be bound by those laws. And if he, if he, if he broke those laws, he would be subject to criminal prosecution. You, you understand the consequences. That's how they saw it. They saw this as their way of getting control of him. Um, and so they, they carried out that plan. And uh, Garibaldi was a very big-time Mason. And he was their point man on the ground here in besieging Rome. He, uh, he was the one who actually carried out the siege of Rome and the actual seizure of the Papal States. And he's a great hero. He's an Italian national hero. Uh, a man who was... Um, he was even, in a sense, using masonry. He was beyond the level of mere masonry in his, in his hatred for the church, in his hatred for Christ. Um, <clears throat> but they didn't want to stop at that because the plan was not only to take away the Pope's independence and have him in their control, they wanted not just the Pope, they wanted the papacy. That's a different matter. They wanted the papacy in their control. So their objective was not only to wind up with a papal prisoner. I mean, they had the Pope imprisoned in the Vatican from basically 1870 to 1929. We're talking about 70 years, 60 years there. They had the Pope bottled up in the Vatican. And he couldn't come out, right? It wasn't until Mussolini found it to be in his own political self-interest to strike a deal and reach a concordat uh, with the Pope because 
uh, Pope Pius XI in this case, dealing with Gaspari, the Secretary of State, in order to uh, free him up from that question so he could pursue his political issue where he wanted to rally the troops to restore the glory of the empire from Rome, you know. Well, we see how far that got. But they didn't want to just have the Pope in their power. They wanted the papacy in their power. It's important for people to realize that when we consider what's going on right now. And that meant they wanted a Pope who would not only be in their physical control, they wanted a Pope who would think like them. They wanted a Pope who would be a, a good Mason without necessarily even having been initiated and initiated without even belonging to a lodge. But he would be like a, 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 a think like a good 32nd, 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason. <clears throat> and so that was their objective, not only to take the Pope, but to take the papacy. That is what we see, what we see happening here. And, <clears throat> you know, ultimately, uh, I know that um, there are those who who are very, very much opposed to uh, vacantism and they look about, you know, all you have to do is say somebody's a sedevacantist, and they, they're like snowflakes. They go to pieces. They can't believe it. No, somebody's sedevacantist. They can't take it. Oh, save us. But the, the point is this. I realize that there are sedevacantists, too, who are very, very wrong in their whole approach. <clears throat> and, and some of them are even, it's hard to even believe that they're Catholics because they make sedevacantism as though it's their religion. Mm -hmm. You know? And sedevacantism is not a religion. <clears throat> but they, they, they talk and they act, they, they obsess about it. <clears throat> and they, they get the message from that, then therefore we can do anything we want, because, you know, he's not the Pope, we can do anything we want. That's not Catholicism. And so I see sometimes the anti-sedevacantists are reacting to that, that caricature of, you know, the real notion of sedevacantism. But really there are sedevacantists who believe that to uphold the honor and the dignity of the papacy itself, we have to believe that Francis is not or might not be the true pope. Because if one can do the things that, that he's doing and still be the pope, this is the most savage attack on the papacy possible. It is the most degrading thing conceivable to think of the papacy actually being used for this purpose and made made into this, you know. I mean, let's face it, I mean, a St. Vicantus could well say, if one can be the Pope and do these things, then what's left of the papacy? What has this made of the papacy? Then what's left? And I can understand very well why do they think that way? So, um, you know, the, the anti-Sedevacantists have to realize that, you know, it is possible that the Sedevacantists are actually thinking in terms of the very dignity of the papacy, but the very essence of the papacy, that they're thinking that if, if there's no doubt but that Francis is the Pope and he can do these things in the name of the papacy, then that he's destroying the papacy. That this is basically... Uh, uh, announcing that the papacy itself is done for the very things that the anti-Sedevacantists are afraid of. Uh, that's why I think we need to have some serious discussions about this. 
and uh, it's, not, it's not just name-calling, but actually starts some serious discussions about the in- significance of what's happening here with Francis. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, uh, ultimately for the purpose of determining what practically has to be done sure. for those who want to remain faithful to the Church and Christ today. Okay. That sounds like a topic for another program, but... I think we better leave it for another program time. Yeah. <laughs> I know our, our goal is to keep this one short. We uh, ironically fell short of that. Well, that is always our goal. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but uh, I can't blame you, that's for sure. You try. <laughs> well, thanks for being here tonight, Father. Well, that was a good discussion. Tom, thank you, too. I appreciate okay. all your good efforts there, and you made some very good points. Thanks, Father. Always do. Thank you. Thanks to all our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.